as we gathered together last week for Easter, we looked at John chapter, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to be back there today. As you recall, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he's, he's been working through it, opening their eyes to who Jesus is. Drawing these, these lines between the way the world says things work and the way God says things work. And, and calling them to, to step out, to trust the way God says it goes, and to choose His way over the way the world says. We've looked at as He's taken that idea and He's applied it directly to different areas of their lives and their worship. The relationships that they have with one another. The ways that they care for those around them. The ways that, that they come together and reflect God's body. As we come to the end of this letter, Paul is really driving home this point of how, how is it that, that we can do any of this? How, how is it that we can even see God's way and God's wisdom over the world's? How is it that we can live in such a way that we can care for those around us, that we can even see the needs of those around us? And when it comes right down to it, we said last week that, that the resurrection, the cross, the death of Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead is at the very heart of this whole message. He said that's, that's the thing upon which it all turns. And he said it's a historical thing. He gave him a challenge. Go, go and check it out for yourselves, he says. The evidence is there. And we saw as he, he called the Corinthian church to a hope that they have in the resurrection. It's this hope that we want to dial in on today. As we come back and we look at the last half of that chapter again, we read through it last week, but we want to uh, really dial in on that idea of hope that we have in Jesus. And so we'll pick it up midway through the chapter in, in verse 35. We're having, remember, just talked about the resurrection and overcoming death. Paul then says, but some, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory for the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. 
And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who, is, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We look through this. We have, we have the, the church seemingly continuing to ask questions. You know, what, what, about, what about when we die? What, what comes next? What, what does all that look like? How does that work? And as we look at it, we'll kind of look at those two questions that, that come in verse 35. How are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? How does it happen and, and what does it look like? With what kind of body? And so as we look at that, we, we see the answer to that first question, how are the dead raised? The quick answer is through God's power. If we look back to verse 15, he has just said, coming out of 14, if, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Where in 15, then he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul has a way of using a lot of words to get around there. Listen to what he's saying. He's saying, if Jesus has not been raised, then everything that we're doing, everything that we're about is all foolishness. It's all ridiculous. We just need to let it go. He says, our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. If Jesus has not been raised. And then, like we said last week, he even takes a step further. If that didn't happen then we're misrepresenting God. We're, we're actually calling God a liar. Because by misrepresenting him, he says, we've been saying that God has raised Jesus from the dead. And if, as some of them are saying, there is no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus was not raised, and then God did not raise him, and we're saying that he did, so we're calling him out as a liar. But Paul looks, and Remember in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So if he has been raised, and look at that passive language there. Isn't that interesting that Jesus has been raised? I, I find myself saying it a lot too, that, that Jesus conquered death. And in a sense, that is absolutely true. But he did it in complete submission to the Father, didn't he? If we're saying that Jesus has been raised, 
It was God the Father who reached down and raised him up. It's, it's a wonderful idea. Because there's so often that we're like, well, you know, Jesus is God, so, so he can do anything. Jesus is God, so he can handle any sort of temptation. I can't. Jesus lived in submission to the Father. Jesus lived empowered by the Spirit. The, the power that raised him from the dead is the same power that is at work in you and me today. So it's the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And so when we start talking about how are the dead raised, it's the power of God that does that work. It's also interesting as we look and, and we see, as we just looked at there in verse 20, calling Jesus the first fruits from among the dead. The first fruits. Have you heard that, that phrase before? Comes from an Old Testament sacrifice where, where the people would gather together is right at the beginning of harvest. That first bit that they have pulled out of the fields in their harvest, they bring to the temple or they bring to the tabernacle, depending on where we're at in, in Israel's history. They bring that first bit that came out of the fields and they bring it to God and they give him that sacrifice of first fruits. Now this sacrifice, this was a celebration. This was something where they took the very first stuff that came out and they brought it to the temple. They brought it to the tabernacle. They brought it to the priest and they celebrated. Why? Because this bit that came out first, this sacrifice of first fruit, looked ahead to that full harvest coming in. They say God has been faithful to give us this, the first fruits. And we know that he's going to continue to be faithful as we bring in the rest of the harvest, as we see the rest of that harvest come in. It's a celebration of God's faithfulness as they bring their offering to him. So what is it that Jesus is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? Think about it in terms of that sacrifice, that Jesus has been raised from the grave. And his offering, his sacrifice, we celebrate because we look forward to that day when the rest of the harvest comes in. When there is a great resurrection from the dead. Jesus was raised as the first fruits, as, as kind of that, that seal, that deposit seal that there is more to come. And it's through him. So how does it happen? It happens because of God's faithfulness. It happens because of God's power. And Paul continues to look there as he gives some talk about Adam. That in Adam all die, but in Christ they shall be made alive. That Christ, in verse 20, 23, Christ is the first fruit. Then, says, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Christ is the first fruit. He's, he's that deposit. 
He's, he's that seal of approval that, that God is doing a great work here. And when he comes back, he says, then all those who belong to Christ are raised up. And then it says in verse 24 comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. But first, after destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. How does this happen? It happens in the power of God. It happens as, as God has raised Christ from the dead and we see that he has, in fact, power over death. And then comes where he raises all those who belong to Christ in victory and his celebration. And then it says that Christ destroys every rule, every authority, and every power. Every rule, every authority, every power, every king that sets himself up against God. Every idol that, that clamors for attention and, and tries to, to draw people away, Jesus destroys them. Every government that is going to deny him, Jesus destroys it. Even death itself. Right? They say there are two things that are sure death and taxes. Even death itself, Jesus destroys it. And then it says, he delivers the kingdom to his father. This is how it happens. Because this is God's design. This is God's plan. This is God showing the wonder of who he is. Imagine what, what this would have sounded like as we talked about Jesus destroying every rule, every authority, and every power. Imagine what that sounds like falling on Roman ears. Where, where the official greeting is, Caesar is Lord. Where Caesar sets himself up as God and calls himself the son of the gods. And Paul comes and says, Jesus destroys every rule, authority, and power. Caesar's the, the most powerful one around here, really? You know what? There was a day when Pharaoh was the most powerful one around. What happened to him when he stood up against God? And Paul says, Caesar wants to say he's Lord. Guess what's going to happen to him? We live in a day now where our government does not stand up and, and declare itself to be God or the sons of the God. But what are those gods that we revere? What are those things that, that we're tempted to put our, our trust in? Whether it be government or, or the bank account or my hobbies, or my rights, or whatever. What are those things that we latch on to and we say, this is what's going to save me? Every rule, authority, and power will be destroyed by Jesus. Everything that stands against him. And this, this destruction, this thing where Jesus comes in and destroys these things, 
is part of his plan for life. We don't think of those together, do we? Destruction and life, those two things don't seem to go together. But what's happening here is Jesus is saying, I'm going to destroy everything that is keeping you from true life. Everything that's standing in your way, everything that that wants to cloud you, I'm going to destroy that so that you can experience what life really is. There's nothing inherently wrong in any of those things. But when they become a a God to us, they got to go. This resurrection happens in the power of God, and it happens because of those who belong to him. If we go ahead and drop down to verse 44 or 45 and, and right around there, we see Paul start talking about bodies, the natural body and the spiritual body. He says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Each of us have natural bodies, right? The fact that that there is something taking up space right there in the pews that you call you, we have natural bodies. He says, just like there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. Now walk with me here through this Adam and Adam thing. Verse 45, he says, thus is it written, the first Adam became a living being. Okay? God created Adam. Remember this from clear back to Genesis 1. He breathed life into him. Looking at Genesis 1 and 2 there. And, and that creation of man took on life. Was able to get up and walk around and move. He said the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam becomes a life-giving spirit. He starts making these connections. There, there was this first man that was created. And then man and woman together created in God's image, mankind, that rebelled against God. Now here he says, the eternal son of God takes on flesh and lives fully human and fully God in one person. And he does not rebel against God. He alone in all of history does not rebel against God, but but goes forth and, and follows him perfectly, obedient even to death on the cross. God puts his stamp of approval. God vindicates his sacrifice by raising him to life. He says, so just as the first Adam became a, a living being and was able to get up and walk around and do things, the last Adam through what he is able to do, can give so much more. We, we inherit natural life. But through that second Adam, we can inherit eternal life, spiritual life. He says in verse 46, but the spiritual is not first. The natural is first, then the spiritual, right? Makes sense that we have to be alive in order to Respond to God's drawing us. So keep walking through this. The first man from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. So as he was, he was able to live and breathe and get up and do things. 
rebel against God. And just as that idea of, of the futility of dust represented his life, not because God made him that way, but because he rebelled against God, that futility also represents our life. But as the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven, bound for more, bound for greater. We have borne the image of the man of dust. We'll bear the image of the man of heaven if we accept that from him. He's talking about salvation here. He's talking about those who were dead in their sin, who had no hope at all, and that God brought them to life. God reached out and drew them to himself, and we say, yes, Lord, we thank you. And we have life in him, and we have this resurrection in him. How does this happen? It happens through the power of God, a power that is unstoppable. The second question they ask there is, is with what kind of body do they come? We're looking at, at a culture that, trying to understand resurrection, can only think maybe of like zombie movies, right? There's a corpse that's dead, and then it kind of gets up again. He's like, that, that doesn't make sense. How does that work? But if we go back and, and we think again of Jesus' first fruits of that resurrection, we get some glimpses into this. And this is where we've got to be really careful of the way we speak. If you saw the post I put up on Facebook about it, it I tiptoed around that so hard. Do we sometimes unintentionally speak unbiblically about death and funerals? Yeah, we do, I think. And let me tell you the way that comes out usually. It can be one or two or, or both ways. One, one way that we sometimes do that is in trying to comfort those around us, we, we say, you know, de death, death isn't really this, this bad thing. De death is more like a friend that is ushering them into, into something new and something greater. We, we don't have to be afraid of death. We can welcome death like an old friend. Hear me well. Death is no old friend. As Christians, we do not need to be afraid of death. And we even see Paul talking about it in Philippians. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, I'd, I'd rather die and be with Christ. But, but God has something for me here, so I'm here. And, and to die means to be with Christ. And that is, that is wonderful. But death is not some old friend that ushers us into that. Remember, Paul has said, the last enemy to be defeated is death. When God created, he created order. He created beauty. He created life. When did death come? Death came when we rebelled. Death came when, when we said, my way is better than God's way. That's when death came. Death is no old friend. Death is the oldest enemy. I suppose aside from Satan. 
So while it's true that we do not need to fear death, we do not welcome death as an old friend. Death is not a friend. Death is an enemy. And praise Jesus, he has overcome death. The other way we, we tend to speak unbiblically is, again, trying to comfort. And we say, we, we look at, at this body lying in a coffin and we say, well, they're now free from, from this prison that they were in. They're, they're now free from, from this, this thing that was holding them down. As though they, the true person is just a spirit and, the, and this body is just something that we had to have as part of us for a little bit. <coughs> but if we think about the way God created, think back to Genesis 1. God created and it was good. He created man and woman in his image. He, he crafted them. He gave them bodies and souls and said, it is very good. Jesus, when he came, did not come just as a spirit floating around teaching. He took on a body. And that was part of the design for it. He was crucified in his body and he was raised up as a body. And he is what Paul calls the first fruits. Remember, as he meets with his disciples, he comes in. Hey, I'm hungry. Anybody got some fish? Let's eat. He goes to Thomas, stick your hands here, poke it into the holes, stick your hand to my side, feel my body and know that this is true. I was really dead and now I'm really alive. Death actually rips that person apart. That the spirit is with God in heaven, and that is beautiful, but it is not the way it's supposed to be yet. Because in the meantime, while we wait for Jesus to come back, that body waits on the ground or is cremated or whatever, and that person is ripped apart, waiting for the time that we see here looking at, at the flesh, that God will recreate all things. He will reunite body and spirit to live the way he designed them to be. When we look to the book of Revelation and, and we see God creating a new heaven and new earth, we see him reuniting body and spirit for his glory to live the way he designed it to be. So with what kind of body will they come? It will be a real body. There will be changes. That which is sown is perishable. What's raised is imperishable. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. There will definitely be differences. But there will be a real body the way God really designed it to be. And we will live in harmony. We've looked at questions of how are the dead raised, raised through God's power, with what kind of body will they come? Possibly the most important question we ever ask is this one. So what? That's a really important question, right? Okay, so, so we know something about, about the way God says it's going to happen. 
So what? How does that affect what we do here and now? It affects it in a few ways. I mean, it affects the way that, that we treat our own bodies. Not just simply seeking out one pleasure after another. As Paul talked about, the, where he said back in verse uh, 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We're not just out seeking whatever pleasure we can find, as some of the philosophers had done. We're also not just trying to, to beat our bodies into submission and, and, and be hateful toward this, like, like oh, if we could just be rid of this earthly vessel, then we could truly be us, as some of the different philosophers did. We look at our bodies as gifts from God to be used for His glory. We start asking God, how do you want to use my hands and feet today? It affects the way we care for one another. The way we look out for one another. That we pray for one another and we care for one another and we bring each other along, but we do not ever discount the physical needs of our neighbors. I mean, look at the story of the Good Samaritan. The one who helped was the one who came along and bent down and bandaged up his wounds and put him on his donkey and carried him into the city, who took care of his physical needs. But one of the big ways is that we have a confidence in our destination in God's great power in the fact that he will bring together the rest of the harvest that he promised at the first fruits. Look at that very last verse, verse number 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We can be steadfast because of the hope that we have in Jesus. We can stand firm against whatever attacks are coming. And sometimes those attacks are overwhelming and they hurt a lot. But we know that that's not the final answer, that God is in control. Think of our brother Wayne Goddard who served God in Paraguay and was attacked by a mob and died from his injuries a few days later. And, and probably had some people tell him, things are getting crazy there. Things are getting a little dangerous there, and you probably shouldn't be there. And he says, no, because my hope is not in just being safe around here. That there's something greater. It allows us to be immovable. To not be swayed by, by every bad thing that happens to us. To not be uh, pulled away by, by every pleasure that's dangled out in front of us. Because we know that there is something greater. And that to spend our, our life chasing things just in these 60, 80, 100 years. And ignore all the rest of eternity makes no sense at all. But if we live now, knowing that there is an eternity of reward in Jesus, we can live in a different kind of confidence, one that is steadfast and movable and abounding in the work of the Lord. Jesus, I thank you. 
Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for walking into death, even death on a cross. A shameful, humiliating, torturous way to die. You took that on with love and grace. For the joy set before you, you endured the cross. I thank you, Father, that you did not leave your son to rot in the grave. But that you breathed life anew into him. Raised him up. God, I thank you for the promise of the first fruits of what you have done in Jesus you will do for each of us. Lord, that one day those who know you, those who belong to you will be raised up, given a new body the way you have designed us to be. To live in joy and peace in your presence. God, I pray that in the here and now, in the flood of things that come, we can live in the confidence that you are doing something great. Lord, may we live as those who have hope in Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.